The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Today is a day that we get to uh, remember as a church uh, and celebrate the ordinance of baptism. This is a great, great uh, privilege that we have and a great opportunity that we have. This is hands down one of my favorite Sundays of the year as we get to listen to the testimonies. Today we get to hear the testimonies of five people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ who have been changed and transformed through him and will, in a moment, come up here to testify to the grace that they've been shown through Christ. And I know you'll be anxious to hear hear their testimonies. Before we do that, though, I want to review for you what God's Word says about baptism. I want us to, to understand what the Word of God says about this issue. And the importance of this issue is underscored by the fact that there are only two ordinances Today for the church. In the Old Testament, there were many ordinances. In the Old Testament, there were many festivals and many sacrifices and many feasts that the Israelites were to participate in. And those were all shadows pointing ahead to the substance. Those were all pictures looking ahead to the reality. And now that Christ has come, there are no more festivals, there are no more feasts. There are no more celebrations and ceremonies that the Israelites were to participate in, that we're to participate in today, because it's all been fulfilled in Christ. And yet Christ has given two ordinances to the church, two very important symbols for us to participate in and regularly be reminded of the rich truths of the gospel. Those are, as you know, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, and Baptism. The Lord's Supper is intended to be an ongoing reminder for us of what Christ has done for us, what he's accomplished at Calvary, what he did in giving himself up and dying and rising from the dead and now securing salvation for all who've placed their faith and trust in him. That is an ongoing reminder, an ordinance that we're to participate in. Baptism is a symbol of what happens when someone then receives Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is to be a one-time reminder to each of us who, when we come to faith in Christ, are to be baptized as a sign and a public testimony that we have committed ourselves to Christ, that we have been changed by Christ, and we're publicly declaring that truth. These are the only two ordinances given to the church today. And so the fact that there's only two highlights for us just how important this ordinance really is. We can't take it lightly. We can't be flippant about it. We can't minimize it or hold it in a low place. We need to exalt this ordinance and hold it very highly because it is one of the two that God has given to the church. And yet it's interesting to me that despite this, baptism baptism seems to be one of the most confusing issues in the church today. There's a lot of confusion around the issue of baptism. There are some groups who will say that baptism has no place within the church today. The Quakers, the Salvation Army, some hyper-dispensationalists are are groups that would say that baptism is not for today. It was for a time, it has no place for today, and it's not to be a part of the church practice today. There are others, those particularly in the Church of Christ, who say that baptism is necessary for salvation. And so they would preach what is known as baptismal regeneration, that in order for you to be saved, you must be baptized, and you must be baptized in the church of Christ. And if you're not, then you're not saved. 
There are other groups, our Reformed friends, and I would classify them as friends, who would say that in order for you to follow baptism, or a possible way to follow baptism is to be sprinkled as an infant, to to participate in the covenant, to be sprinkled as an infant and, and brought into that covenant through the practice of sprinkling infants. There's believer's baptism, which we hold to here. There's even the group of the Mormons which practice a baptism for the dead whereby they baptize someone for someone else who has already died in their place in order to secure their release from purgatory. And so there are not purgatory, but release from wherever they are. And so there's all these different views on baptism and, and all these kind of different ideas as to what baptism is to be and, and which one is right. They can't all be right. So which one's right? What is the biblical understanding of, of biblical baptism, of believer's baptism? And it's that issue that we want to examine for some time this morning. Added to this confusion is a very interesting paradox that we see in the church today. There is within the church two groups of people which I find very interesting. There are those who are baptized unbelievers, and then there are unbaptized believers. Think this through with me. In the church today, in the church broad, in the church general, there is a group that are baptized unbelievers. Where we have people who are in the church, who are in the the visible church, who have undergone the ordinance of baptism and yet are not saved. They're not regenerate. And who knows, for whatever reason, they, they have gone through the ordinance of baptism. It's possible that they've done it because... Their friends have done it, and so they want to do what their friends have done. Or perhaps they believe that it's a means of grace by which they will secure some of God's blessing upon their life. Or some even believe that it's possibly a step towards their salvation and securing their salvation. So within the church today, there is this group of baptized unbelievers. On the flip side, in the church today, there is another group, the unbaptized believers. These are genuine believers. These are people who are truly know Christ, who are genuinely saved. And many of them, perhaps for years, have been saved and walking with Christ. And yet, for whatever reason, they have been not willing to undergo the waters of believers' baptism. And so they're unbaptized believers. Very interesting groups, very paradoxical groups, where we have baptized unbelievers within the church and unbaptized believers within the church. Perhaps some of you are in this category this morning, the latter category, where by you are a believer in Christ, you've been so perhaps for many years, and yet to this point have not been baptized by believer's baptism. And I want to urge you this morning to reconsider. I want to urge you to, to listen carefully this morning, and I want to urge you to be baptized. What could lead a believer to not be baptized by believer's baptism? One, let me just suggest some reasons for you why this could happen. One is they could be not taught. It is possible that if you're a believer who is unbaptized, that you are just not taught. You just haven't been instructed in the ways of the Lord and the ways of the word about this issue. And so that reason may have led you to this point of not being baptized as a believer, just not taught about this issue. A second reason could be that a person's confused. 
confused about the mode and the meaning and why and what and how and all these different scenarios and possibilities about baptism has left you somewhat confused about what this ordinance is about. I can relate to that. I was raised in a church where I was sprinkled as an infant. I don't remember that, but uh, they tell me that's what happened. And so I I was raised in that. And, And so when I came to Christ in college... I was confused. What what do I do with baptism? I've been sprinkled as an infant. I was told that I was baptized as an infant. But the scriptures seem to say something different. What do I do with this? Does that baptism count? Am I not been baptized? And so for me, I was in the shoes of being confused for quite a while as I tried to sort out. What do I do with this and how do I... Bring my understanding of baptism under submission to God's word. So maybe it's an issue of being untaught. Maybe it's an issue of being confused. Maybe a third issue is maybe it's fear. Maybe the thought of standing up in front of people and giving a public testimony is fearful. We understand that. And maybe it's just fear that has kept you from being baptized. Fourthly, maybe someone put it off too long and don't want to do it later in life, and perhaps you've been saved for many, many years, perhaps even decades, and the thought of being baptized now, older in life or later in life, is somewhat of a daunting task to you, and so the desire uh, is to not participate. A fifth reason may be just an unwillingness to obey Christ's instructions to, to be baptized. So all of these reasons could go into why someone is a genuine believer and yet not yet baptized in the waters of believer's baptism. And I want to suggest to you this morning that I believe it's very dangerous to have unbaptized believers within the church. Let me suggest a couple of reasons why I think this is serious. As I said before, there are only two ordinances. And for a believer to not participate in one of those is serious. And it's serious because God blesses obedience, right? We understand that. When, when God gives instructions, and we as believers follow those instructions, he blesses that. And he showers blessings upon those who are willing to engage in the waters of baptism, who are willing to obey him and follow his instructions. And so God always blesses obedience. But when a believer is unwilling to be obedient to Christ's instructions, what we do is we remove ourselves from the blessings of God's grace in some fashion. Not entirely. We're still in Christ, but... A believer who is unbaptized removes themselves from the flow of God's blessing and from the flow of God's desire to shower them with his grace and his blessings. I believe it's spiritually dangerous for a believer to not participate in believer's baptism. I believe it's also dangerous to the church. I believe it's dangerous to the church for a church to not take this seriously. And here's what I mean by this. Failure to take baptism seriously has blurred the line, has blurred the distinction between believer and unbeliever. When a church fails to stand firm on this issue, when they fail to take a strong position and hold baptism very highly as the Word of God does, if it's optional or not viewed with the light that it should be viewed, then what happens is Christ's commands are minimized. And when Christ's commands are minimized and the purity of the church is affected, because what happens is a church can begin to accumulate people 
where they have to make no public profession of Christ at all, and that begins to accumulate people. And so what you have over time is a blurring of the lines of the distinction between believer and unbeliever. You see the danger? When baptism is held highly, when it's held as the ordinance that it's intended to be in the church, then there's clear expectation that if you're saved and you're in Christ, then at some point you make a public testimony and profession of faith in Christ. You make a public statement that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and there's no shame in that. But when that, that's not there, the church can accumulate people who want to make no public profession at all. And so the demand... When the demand is laid on people, if you put your trust and faith in Christ, then you have to make a public confession of that. But when that expectation is not there, then the demands of following Christ, I believe, are lowered. So these are some serious implications of, of not holding baptism strongly within the church. It's spiritually detrimental to your spiritual condition, and it's spiritually dangerous to the church as well. What I want to do this morning is I want to show you the importance of believer's baptism. I want to just kind of do a little Bible study. We're not going to go to one text today. We're just going to do a little Bible study and just walk through a quick survey of of the Gospels and then into the book of Acts. And I just want to show you that this is a very, very important topic. And what I want to do is I want to survey for you Christ's instructions at the end of Matthew. And then I want to walk through a quick survey in the book of Acts and see if we can establish a pattern. Is there a pattern here? To clarify the confusion, to remove the confusion, I want us to see the, the pattern that has been laid out for us in the New Testament to see exactly what Christ commanded when he gave this instruction to be baptized. A little history here. A little history on the issue of baptism. Remember, as the New Testament opens, that John the Baptist is baptizing. That's how he got his name, by the way, John the Baptist. And so he's going around in the nation of Israel, and he is baptizing. Now, what kind of baptism was this? You need to understand a little history here before we understand believers' baptism. Before Christ instituted believers' baptism, baptism was in practice. But it was in practice for Gentile converts who wanted to convert to Judaism. Very important. Listen very carefully. Because John the Baptist's baptism is not the same as believer's baptism. Right? So what you had before Christ comes on the scene is you have Gentile seekers who wanted to worship the God of Israel. Yet some Gentiles who recognized in Judaism that they were worshiping the one true God. And so they, in their desire to follow that one true God, were asked to go through baptism. They were asked to do three things, actually. They were first asked to be circumcised. Then they were asked to offer sacrifices. And then thirdly, they were asked to go to be baptized by immersion, to symbolize the fact that they were dying to their Gentile way of life, that they were dying to the world, that they were no longer participating in the ways of the world, and they have a new relationship with God. And so this is where baptism first appeared. It appeared prior to Christ. And it was put in place for a Gentile convert to Judaism to demonstrate their commitment to the God of Israel. So John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he follows that same baptism practice. But he does something a little bit different. He not only says to the Gentiles to undergo this, he says to the Jews, you've got to undergo this. Now remember, his baptism was a baptism of what? 
repentance. So in that baptism, you were saying, I am repenting of my sin. I am placing my faith and trust in Christ. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that I am rotten to the core and I need grace and I need forgiveness. That's what a Gentile was saying when they submitted to the waters of baptism. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, hey, you Jews, you need the same baptism. And you need to confess the same realities that you too are sinners. That you need grace. That you need forgiveness. You see why it was so hard for a Jew to submit to this kind of baptism. Us? The chosen people of God? Serious? This was almost unthinkable for them to confess that they were sinned, to confess and admit that they needed grace, that they needed forgiveness, that they needed cleansing and and transformation. That, That was unthinkable to most Jews. And so what did they do to John the Baptist? They... They killed him. That was the baptism that was in place prior to the time of Christ. And while believers' baptism has its roots today in that baptism, it's not the same. It's very different. And so Christ comes onto the scene, and Christ goes through his public ministry, and he gets to the end of his public ministry, and he says, you've got to go make disciples, and you've got to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that fulfilled in the book of Acts. Different baptism, though. It's not the same baptism as the baptism of John. It's very different. And Christ puts a different meaning to that symbol and that ordinance. What I want to do with it, I want to trace it quickly through the New Testament with you so you can see the pattern that's established. Go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. Most of you know these verses well as the Great Commission. You understand that Christ has completed his public ministry. He's died. He's been raised from the dead. And just before his ascension, he gives a charge a charge to the disciples, and he says, you need to go now following the commands that I've given you and the ministry that I've entrusted to you, and you've got to go and make disciples. And so he commissions them. Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Most of you understand that the main verb in that text is to make disciples. The main emphasis there, the primary instruction, is to make disciples. And there's three other verbs known as participles that help us understand and explain how to do that. And so how do you make disciples? You make disciples by going, and you make disciples by baptizing, and you make disciples by teaching. But the main emphasis is make disciples. Preach the gospel, share Christ, proclaim the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, urge people to embrace that and be saved, and then teach them and baptize them. So these are the instructions that Christ leaves with his disciples and he charges them to this wonderful, great commission. Go make disciples. And as you do that, when you do that, teach them and baptize them. Now, the question is, how is that fulfilled? 
Is there a pattern that is established in the book of Acts, which is the sequel to the Gospels? Is there a pattern that's established? Can we identify a clearly discernible, repeatable pattern that demonstrates how Christ's instruction to make disciples and baptizing them is fulfilled? That's an important question. Because if we can identify a pattern and a clearly discernible process by which this was fulfilled, then we can clearly say, this is God's expectation for baptism. Christ gives the command. The early church follows that command. We follow in the footsteps of those who practice that. So what is that? Is there a pattern that is clearly discernible in the book of Acts? And I would submit to you that there is. There is a clearly repeatable discernible pattern that that is demonstrated for us in the book of acts and it's always conversion baptism and believers baptism salvation baptism justification baptism and over and over and over again in the book of acts we're going to see this pattern as as the pattern of christ is fulfilled as the instruction of christ is fulfilled as he gives a command and as the church follows that out we're going to see that pattern develop So I want to show it to you this morning. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're going to start. We're going to do a quick survey so you can see how this is fulfilled. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 2. You remember the setting here? It's Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover, 50 days after the death and resurrection of Christ. It's just a few days now after Christ has ascended back into heaven. And the 120 believers are gathered together in an upper room or in a room in Jerusalem. And they're, they're gathered there. They're huddled together. They're praying. They're worshiping. And suddenly, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Exactly as Christ promised that would happen. Suddenly, these 120 believers are are, are filled with the Holy Spirit as as God, through Christ, gives the Holy Spirit. And tongues of fire appear on them, and they begin speaking in tongues, and they begin speaking in real languages. By the way, those are known languages. Those were known languages because we know that there were Jews in Jerusalem from other parts of the world that were in that city, in Jerusalem, and they heard now their language being spoken in the city of Jerusalem. These are real languages. And these Jews start asking, what is this? Some even suggested they were drunk. They start asking the question, what's going on here? We've never seen this before. What, what's happening? And so Peter takes his stand on, on this day and he begins to preach. And I love this. It was just a few weeks ago, Peter was scared, running, denied Christ, nowhere to be seen. And here he is just a few weeks later. Standing boldly, preaching the gospel. You want to know what this is, Jews? Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what's at stake here. Let me tell you what's witnessing, what you're witnessing right here. And Peter begins to explain to them about Christ, how he died and how he was raised from the dead. And, and he preaches the resurrection to them. And they hear this marvelous explanation of the gospel. And this whole group of people who are gathered there hears this powerful sermon delivered by a man of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. And they hear the gospel preached. Look at verse 37. Acts two thirty-seven. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? I love that. They're pierced to the heart. Literally, they're, they're cut, they're stabbed, they're pricked, they're, they're, they're wounded in their conscience. 
They've heard possibly one of the most gripping, most powerful proclamations of the gospel ever delivered. And they are cut to the heart. Say, what what do we do? What do we do with this? Look what Peter says, verse 38, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Very simple. Repent, be baptized. Repent. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He's not saying that if you get baptized, you will automatically be saved. He's not preaching baptismal regeneration here. He's simply saying that if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you believe, you repent, then you demonstrate the reality of that through the waters of baptism. So his point is turn from your sin. Demonstrate that fact that you are a new creation in Christ by being obedient to the waters of baptism. And that's exactly what happened. Look down in verse 41, Acts 2, 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 saved, 3,000 baptized. Very clearly discernible pattern. That's a pretty good gospel presentation day, isn't it? 3,000 people come to Christ, 3,000 saved and baptized in one day. There's a pattern here. Repent, get baptized. Believe, be baptized. It's an example. This is the example that is set for us, the pattern that is set for us on the basis of Christ's instruction in Matthew 28. Make disciples and go baptize them. This is how it's to be done. Preach the gospel, see them come to Christ, see them believe, and then baptize them. Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. By this time, great persecution has arisen in Jerusalem. Saul was on his rampage to kill Christians at this point. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And so on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so there's this great persecution that breaks out. Saul's a part of it. The lives of Christians are threatened, so they scatter. Kind of like kicking coals out from a fire. Those coals now light other fires. And if you think persecution is bad for the church, think again. Persecution is good for the church. If you're fearful fearful of persecution for our church in the coming day in this country, on one hand, yeah, it's hard for us to consider that. But persecution is good for the church. It purifies the church, scatters the church, and it sends the gospel out. It's exactly what's happening here. Suddenly, these believers are scattered throughout this region, Judea, Samaria, and Philip was one of them. Look down in verses 4 and 5. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. So Philip is one of the men who scattered from Jerusalem. He goes down to Samaria, and he begins preaching the gospel. And people begin to hear of Christ. Look down in verses 12 and 13. It says, but when they believed Philip, there it is, they believed They repented, they believed the preaching of the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, men and women alike. You see the pattern? Belief, baptism. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. He believed, was baptized. There's a question as to whether Simon actually believed, was a true believer. But you see the pattern there. 
The pattern is belief, baptism. Salvation, believer's baptism. It's the pattern that develops all throughout the book of Acts in fulfillment of Christ's command to be baptized. Look down in chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. Philip continues on his ministry. Philip goes and continues to preach the gospel throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And verse 36 says, when he went along the road, they came back up, actually, a couple of verses. It says in verse 26, actually, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And so here's Philip, minding his own business. Walking down the road. And God is the divine appointment for Philip with this Ethiopian. And, and Philip encounters this man and he's, he's got his scroll open to the book of Isaiah. And he's reading this. And verse 30 says, when Philip had run up to him, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? You know what that's called? That's an open door. This is the Ethiopian begging for someone to tell me, what does this say? Verse 32, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, and he quotes from Isaiah 53. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus. He made him a disciple of Christ. This Ethiopian believed Verse 36, and they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water. <laughs> I love that. This is kind of simple, basic, isn't it? He understands, you know, you get saved, you get baptized, they're minding their own business, walking down the road in their chariot, they're riding down the road, and he says, hey, look, there's water. Stop. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. See the pattern? Belief, baptism. Conversion, believer's baptism. And note, by the way, he went down into the water. This is no sprinkling. This is not dabbing. This, this is not pouring. This is, he went down into the water. It's the pattern. It's the clear pattern that develops all through the book of Acts. It's conversion, baptism. It's salvation, immersion into water is a symbol of that salvation. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul and how this man who was a persecutor of the church and a hater of Christians, this is his own testimony and how he came to faith in Christ. And you remember what happened to him. He was on the road to Damascus. He was on his way there to Persecute more Christians. And on his way, this violent aggressor of the church was stopped. Stopped in his tracks by the bright light of Jesus Christ who confronted him on the road to Damascus. And he's walking away, walking along the road, and suddenly the heavens open up and the brightest light that he's ever seen stops him dead in his tracks. Saul fell to the ground. Those eyes were open. He could see nothing. And he said, who are you, Lord? Isn't that shocking to you? He knows exactly who he's dealing with. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said to him, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city and it will be told you what to do. And that's exactly what Saul did. He got up. He walked into the city as a blind man. 
He met a man named Ananias who instructed him in the way more clearly, who preached Christ to him. Saul became a believer in Jesus Christ in Damascus. Now look down at Acts chapter 9, verse 18. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. Very simple. He came to Christ. He was regenerated. He was converted. He was saved in the city of Damascus under the ministry and discipleship of Ananias. And then he was baptized. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, you remember the story of a man named Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, who was a God-fearing man, but not a believer in Jesus Christ. He feared God, he loved God, but he did not know yet of Christ. So he wasn't a Christian. He was a God-fearer, but not a Christian. And one day in a vision, he was told to send for Peter. And so Cornelius suddenly has this vision, this this vision that he's to send for a man named Peter who's in the city of Joppa. And so he did. The very next day, Peter himself has a vision himself. And it's a vision of a giant sheet coming down from heaven held at the four corners. And inside this sheet, it's filled with all kinds of animals. Animals that the Jews could never eat because they were unclean. And a voice from heaven tells Peter to, to eat. And Peter says, I can't eat. I can't eat that stuff. That's unclean. But God was using that to prepare Peter to show him that what was once unclean is now not unclean anymore. The Gospels are going to go from the Jews to the Gentiles. So Paul, Peter rather, was told to travel to Caesarea to meet up with this man named Cornelius. And so he does. He meets up with Cornelius and he preaches the gospel to him and the Holy Spirit fell upon him and it says he believed the gospel and was saved. Look down in Acts chapter 10, verse 47. And it says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and then they asked him to stay on for a few days. It's the same pattern. Over and over and over and over again. It's the same pattern. Believe be baptized. Come to Christ. Be baptized. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Just a couple more. Acts chapter 16. This is Paul now. The ministry of Paul to the Gentiles. Paul travels to a city named Philippi. Acts 16 verse 14. It says, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So here's Paul. He's in Philippi. He's preaching the gospel. There's some women here who've been gathered kind of by the riverside, and he comes and he, he begins preaching the gospel to them and it proclaims the resurrected Christ. This woman says in verse 14 that it, her heart was opened to respond. She believed. She repented. She placed her faith and trust in Christ. And look at verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized. See the order? It's the same order. Believe, be baptized. Conversion, baptism by immersion. Look down to the end of chapter 16. We see the same, same pattern down here with the Philippian jailer. You remember the story here? Paul and Silas were thrown into jail for preaching the gospel in Philippi. 
And uh, about midnight, it says in verse 25 that they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house was shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. So here they are, Paul and Silas sitting in prison and they're singing and they're worshiping God. And suddenly a massive earthquake shakes the whole foundation of this prison and cell doors are thrown open and the chains fall off the prisoners. And the jailer, who's responsible for this, verse 27, says he was roused from his sleep and he saw the prison doors open and he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had to escape. You see, if you're a prisoner, prison guard and your prisoners escape, that's on you. Better kill yourself or be killed. And so he's about ready to fall on his sword. Paul cried out, verse 28, with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself. For we are all here. And I love what the man said, verse 31. Actually says, verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Don't you love that? He doesn't say, um, what just happened here? He didn't say, how'd you guys get out? He didn't say, where's your chains? He has one question. How do I get salvation? What a great question. So Paul says, verse 32, it says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. See it? It's the same order. It's the same pattern. Believed and was baptized. Two more. Acts chapter 18. Go over to chapter 18. Acts 18, verse 8. Paul is now in Corinth. He's preaching the gospel in Corinth, the synagogue. Look at verse 8, Acts 18, verse 8. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, after hearing the message of the gospel preached through Paul, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. It's the same order. Belief, baptism. Belief, baptism. Conversion, baptism. Salvation, immersion in water. It's the same pattern over and over and over. One more. Go down to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, the last one. Acts 19, verse 1. One more group that Paul encounters in the city of Ephesus. He finds a group of men who were disciples of John the Baptist. Not Christians. They were disciples of John the Baptist, not yet saved in the New Testament sense. And he encounters them, and he says in verse 2 to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there was a Holy Spirit. See, they've never heard the gospel before. Verse 3 says, Into then what baptism were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. He said, Paul or John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And so what Paul says is, Hey, listen, that's good that you were baptized by John, and that's good your God fears, but there's a whole part of the story you're missing, and the rest of the story is Christ has come, and he died for you, and he's been raised from the dead, and he sent his Holy Spirit to live in you now if you will receive him as your Lord and Savior. And when they heard this, verse 5, they believed, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see the pattern? That's just a quick survey. 
And I want you to see that because that is so instructive for us. Jesus gives a command, make disciples. And when you make disciples, you've got to baptize them and teach them. How did that take place? How was that fulfilled? The book of Acts written by Luke is the sequel. And he tells us exactly how that was fulfilled. And every baptism in the book of Acts is post-conversion by immersion. It kind of rhymes, doesn't it? You could write that down and make a phrase out of that. By conversion, post-conversion by immersion. I want to draw some principles for you, some implications as we wrap up. As I, I want you to understand very clearly a few principles that come out of a study like this. Number one, first, baptism always follows salvation. Or you could state it, baptism should always follow salvation. The point of this survey and one of the key lessons that we learn is that there is an un disputable pattern that develops through the book of Acts. And when someone has truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will want to be baptized. They will want to follow Christ's command. They will want to follow his instructions. They will come to the conviction that this is clearly a command by Jesus Christ, and they will become desirous of entering the waters of baptism so that they can publicly testify of the amazing grace that has been shown them through Christ They don't want to delay that. They don't want to put that off. You notice in these baptisms, they're almost immediate, right? Saved, baptized, saved, baptized. In the early church, Christians were often known as the baptized ones because baptism was so synonymous with salvation. So baptism always follows salvation. Spurgeon himself said, Nothing is more plainly taught in the New Testament than that it is the duty of every believer in Christ to be baptized. Number two, there's a second lesson that emerges from a survey like this, and it is this that immersion is the proper mode for baptism. Immersion is the proper mode for baptism. So, how do you, how do you make that statement? On a couple of bases. First, we saw with the Ethiopian that when he was baptized, it physically says he went into the water and came up out of the water. Luke, a very careful historian, a doctor who writes with great clarity and great precision, wants us to understand very clearly that baptism is immersion into water. And so he's very careful in the case of the Ethiopian to make us understand that he came up out of the water having gone down into the water. That's one reason we know. Secondly, we know this to be true because the word itself, baptism, means to immerse. It means to, to, to dip completely, or my favorite definition, to drown. Okay, don't worry. You five people, we have lifeguards stationed around the side. You'll be fine. But it's to the point of making that is so certain that when you go in the waters of baptism, you are thoroughly immersed. You, you are all the way down, completely covered, and fully immersed into the waters of baptism. That's what the word baptism means, to immerse. And that's why the writers of the New Testament wanted to preserve the meaning that they don't translate the word, they transliterate the word. You understand the difference? Translating the word, you take the Greek term and you 
define an English equivalent of that word. That's not what they do with this word. They take the Greek word and they write it the same way in English. Baptizo. Baptize. Because they want us to understand very clearly that it means to immerse, to, to, to thrust under the water. This is consistently the pattern that we see all throughout the book of Acts. We see it in John's baptism as well. This was the mode by which they engaged. He engaged in baptism. Jesus himself was baptized in this fashion. After being baptized, Matthew tells us, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So this, this is the proper mode. And it's the proper mode because God wants us to see a visual picture, a symbol of what has taken place in your life having come to Christ. See, when, when you go under the water, it's a symbol of the washing away of your old life. And when you come up out of the water, it's a symbol of a, this new life which has come to you through faith in Christ. It's a picture. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. And God wants you to know and see that picture very, very clearly. There's a third lesson. The third lesson is this, that baptism illustrates our union with Christ's death and resurrection. This is the picture. This is what God wants us to understand. This is what he wants to communicate. That baptism illustrates our union with Christ's death and his resurrection. When someone is baptized, they are identifying with the person and the work of Christ. And they're identifying with his church, the body of Christ. Romans chapter 6, Paul writing about spiritual baptism, not water baptism. He says this, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. That's the picture. When you come to Christ, your old life is buried, gone, done away. It's the old person. It's, it's not you anymore. And when you come up out of the water, it's a symbol of the newness of life that you have in Jesus Christ. So, this is what God wants us to understand. This is the pattern. This is the mode. This is the meaning. And here at Maranatha, we want to hold that very highly because we want to proclaim clearly the meaning of baptism and we want Christ's name to be exalted. If you're here today and you've been baptized, rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your baptism as you see these people baptized today. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, we pray that these testimonies God would use in your heart to draw you to himself. That you would see real people whose lives have been changed by Christ and that you too would want to truly come to know him as your Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you're an unbaptized believer, and we urge you to pray and consider and study the scriptures and ask God to help you come to clarity and conviction on this issue. And we would urge you to be baptized soon in the waters of baptism. For those of you who are being baptized, the five of you, uh, rejoice. You are following the pattern that has been established since the church has been established. And you get to participate in a long line of believers who themselves have been obedient to Christ's command in the waters of baptism. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions on this issue. 
And we thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word and its ability to help us make sense of a potentially confusing issue. We thank you for how the writers of the New Testament were very careful to make this pattern clear and very careful to help us understand what your heart is in the fulfillment of the command for believers to be baptized. Lord, we thank you for the five that will come momentarily to testify of your grace in their life. We pray, Lord, that you'll give them courage and boldness and no fear in stating publicly what you've done in and through them. Lord, as we sing, as we sing one more time about Christ and his amazing sacrifice, Lord, let all of us rejoice. Let all of us remember the day when you drew us to yourself and be exalted as we sing. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.